Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Mark Wasserman, who is the author of Ska Boom, an American ska and reggae oral history. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's a fun book to read. Uh, it's a deep and fascinating book into such a cool time in music history. And I have to say, it's pretty damn definitive, too. But it's your story and journey that captured me that set it all up. Uh, can you tell our listeners about your childhood that sets up the book? Sure. Well, I had a very typical Generation X childhood. And for anybody who isn't Gen X, that meant lots of unsupervised time, either like running around with packs of other kids or by myself. And I think that sort of fostered a, a certain level of... Um, independence and curiosity about the world. I mean, my parents literally would, you know, tell me to go out in the morning and we'll see you, we'll see you before dinner. So it was kind of a cool way to grow up in some ways. You know, I think my generation in a lot of ways, we just discovered life on our own. And for me, one of those things was music. Um, my parents did play music around the house when I was growing up, but it was these car rides that we used to take where we'd listen to, I guess it was like AM pop radio that I sort of became like really tuned into and, and then quite obsessed because I think that was sort of an era in the early 70s, mid 70s of certain songs that just seemed a little off the beaten path from like 60s pop. I mean, there were songs that still stick with me today, like um, Half Breed by Cher and the song Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. There was something dark or that had the outsider approach to those songs. It just appealed to me for some reason. And, and that was sort of my in, I think, to being into music that was um, not shiny and happy, but told stories about people challenged by life or dispossessed or sort of looked down on. And that definitely opened me up to, to music that I was going to hear later in the 80s. And you know, like a lot of people, you had a friend or a guide, as I've heard it called, uh, who brought the specials and two-tone into your life. And what was the first song that hit you? And, and why did it hit you so hard? Yes, I had a friend who uh, I went to middle school with, and then he, uh, his parents sent him away to boarding school. 
he wasn't doing as well in schools as they hoped he would. So they figured private school would set him straight. And I guess it was in private school there where he was just with a bunch of kids from all over the country and, and some kids from outside the US that somebody turned him on to the specials first album. And when he came home to visit and I went to see him, he had that album. He played it for me. And I'm pretty sure it was the first song on side one, Do the Dog by the specials. When I heard that, uh, it just knocked me out. Mm -hmm. I literally never heard anything like that before. I call it my lightning bolt movement. I was both scared and exhilarated, exhilarated by what I heard. I had never heard anything like that. I'd never heard guitars played like that. I'd never heard a deep bass line like that or drums and just the sounds of the voices. I really couldn't understand a lot of the lyrics because they were singing in you know, a Midlands accent you know, from Coventry, but there was just something about it that just connected with me. And, and that was sort of the, the door opener for me to, to all of two-tone and then you know, early 60s ska and then 60s and 70s reggae. Yeah, I had a similar experience and I went to private school where it was all Molly Hatchet and, you know, that kind of thing. And right. uh, I became a punk rocker, which was dangerous at the time. But <laughs> I was just talking to a friend about The Clash's White Man and the Hammersmith Palais, which name checked all these classic uh, reggae artists. And I remember going to the store trying to find records by them. And that was my entry point, which, of course, then led me down the road to original ska and then later the, the second generation ska. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning how important record store clerks were also to my journey. They weren't always friendly and they didn't suffer fools well, but if you um, asked questions that you know, were smart, they were helpful. So that they, they also helped guide me and, and more so than anybody because I would go into a record store and I'd say, I really like the specials. Is there anything else like this that you would recommend? And they'd be like, oh, hell yeah, have you ever heard of the English beat or have you heard of the selector? And so those folks also were really important guiding me along my path as well. Yeah, definitely. Nothing like going into a record store with some cash in your pocket and wanting to buy something. You know, that was <laughs> exactly. a great day. Yes. You know, it's funny, speaking of records, um, besides the music, you mentioned that the artwork was just so mesmerizing to you. And, and I fully agree with that. That period has some unbelievably creative and iconic album covers and logos and then merch. You know, what are some of your favorites? What are the ones that really connected with you? You know, honestly, all of the two-tone artwork had a certain power. And that's no surprise because uh, Jerry Dammers, uh, the keyboard player and the leader of the specials, uh, went to art school. And so I think smartly, he knew he had a sound, but he was also trying to create a brand that would connect uh, with what the messaging in the music was. So clearly it was about, at that time, bringing both black and white together during sort of a, a time when, when racial discord was at a high in, in England. And so the sort of the simplicity of that first specials album is, is just really powerful. Um, the black and white checks, are something we still see to this day that bands in the 21st century still use because Jerry put, put those together. I, I think the other one that just stands out for me is the um, first English Beat album. There's sort of an art deco feel to that, but also just the inventiveness of putting all six of the members sort of silhouettes together and alternating the black and white so you knew who was black and white, but then pink. Like not in a million years would I ever have expected to think when I was an early teenager that I would like an album that had pink on it. But the, the pink mixed with the white and the black and 
the lettering for the English beat, it just knocked me out again. Like it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So the imagery of all those albums was just as important as the sounds. And it's interesting because today you mentioned the word brand and, you know, that's everywhere, you know, today, but punk rock tried that, you know, but two-tone and the name two-tone is just so great because it just encapsulated their whole philosophy so quickly. And they were way ahead of the time, I think, visually. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Jerry really took a visual approach and you see that at least in the early albums that were all on the two-tone label, you know, the first selector album has that also sort of mesmerizing picture of what looks to be a rude boy, you know, with his, with his head on his arm, you know, either just got in a fight or is drunk or whatever, but just again, iconic stuff that stood out, but also connected um, with the other albums so that you, they all hung together, you know, sound wise, but also visually. Definitely. And definitely a social movement as well as a musical one. Exactly. I should have mentioned, too, uh, very importantly, uh, that aside from being an author, you're also a bass player and you've played bass in, in a number of ska bands. And you wrote that seeing the English beat in 83 sets you on a path that you continue to walk. Can you fill our listeners in on that? I was became obsessive about the English beat. And the reason for that was because more than any of the other two-tone bands, they actually made a go of breaking in the United States. They signed to IRS, which was an independent American label. They pushed them. They, they, they tried to sort of break them through college radio, but also they were on American Bandstand. And um, you saw their video for Save It For Later on MTV. That just opened a whole world to me that like this band that I love is accessible to me in a way that bands that I like have never been before. You know, to see them on network television on a Saturday morning with Dick Clark was sort of mind blowing. You know, and Dick Clark decided for a short period of time that he was gonna give new wave bands some, some airplay. So they fell into that category, even though they were sort of a non-traditional band, but they came to tour and they came to New Jersey and they came to play this heavy metal club down at the Jersey shore. Um, called the Fountain Casino, and my friends and I grabbed tickets to that show, and it was, for me, the first club show I'd ever been to, and we had to get fake IDs, so there was a whole process, a whole preparation before that show, like a ritual um, that we underwent, and, and it, it, when we walked inside that club, it was surrounded by people drinking, people smoking weed, people smoking cigarettes. It was sort of like a real entry into adulthood, so that, that was one part of it, but seeing the band live for me was just life-changing. You know, to see Ranking Roger and Dave Wakeling and the way they interacted was crazy. But as an aspiring musician, when I saw the bass player for English Beat, David Steele, he was this kind of odd, unique guy. He played the bass in an unusual way, but he also moved around in an unusual, he kind of shuffled around on stage. He would go back and forth, side to side. He swung his guitar around and I just, became mesmerized. And I remember standing there, the whole crowd was heaving back and forth. And I was just laser focused on watching David Steele play the bass. And I sort of left that show saying, I'm going to learn how to play the bass. That looks like the coolest instrument. And he's the coolest musician I've ever seen in my life. That's awesome. I, I saw them open for the Clash up here in Boston on the Sandinista tour, which was, I think, right around 80, 81, something like that. And they more than held their own. I mean, they were really, really good live. Amazing. 
if memory serves my notes, it was another show that summer that remains a touchstone of your life with another band. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, um, that was Madness. You know, a lot of the two-tone bands were very serious. Even the Beat, who had sort of a joyous sound, were singing about pretty serious things. And Madness kind of wrote songs uh, about Slice of Life, where they were from in North London. You know, as again, as a kid and not being from England, I didn't always get what they were talking about, but there was a fun quality about Madness, uh, a real sense of humor. And they just looked so cool. They really did. I mean, the suits and Suggs was this kind of really outgoing, charismatic guy, but so was the saxophone player. And you'd occasionally see their videos, which were always very crazy and zany. And there was just something very, very appealing about them. And also I had my first girlfriend at the time and um, they had a song called It Must Be Love, which uh, was our song. And she and I went to this show together and um, seeing a show with, you know, in the, the first throes of love as a teenager was again, sort of a, a, a new experience as a, as a burgeoning adult. And so there was something really uh, important about that. And I was also getting ready to go to college after that show. I think I went to college like two or three days later. Wow. And so it was sort of the last gasp of being like a high school kid and um, entering adulthood. But also, again, it, it reaffirmed for me what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to play the bass and I wanted to play ska music. And teenagers in love and music are, are romantically intertwined throughout the history of music, I would love to say. Um, <laughs> you, so you mentioned college, and you went to college in the New York City area, and that, of course, provided even more of a live scene for you. And, and then finally, your epiphany of a bass guitar. Yeah, I, I, uh, I went to Rutgers University, which is in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and is about 40 minutes from New York. So uh, once I sort of found a peer group of like-minded people, we would often venture into New York and see shows. I probably went into New York at least once a month to see shows. And that was sort of the heyday, 83, 84, 85, of all these bands that were being booked to play like the Ritz and other places in New York. And so uh, while being in school was important and I was a good student, it was just, again, dialing into and learning about this uh, world of live music. And that if you had a couple bucks, I had a um, work study job. If I had a couple bucks, you could plan ahead and go see a band that you wanted to see. So again, it was, it was going from just listening to music to actually experiencing music. It just became obsessive for me. It was really, when, how many shows can I go see? And what bands can I check off the list? And you know, buy their album, see the show. It was just sort of a non-ending loop uh, like that, that just defined a lot of my college years. I know that well. Uh, this led to your first very diverse ska band, right? That's right. So during that time, I discovered, much to my surprise and, and uh, delight, that there was a ska scene in New York, an actual local ska scene in New York. A lot of that had been sort of driven and developed by Rob Hingley, who is the uh, leader of the Toasters. Uh, he expat Englishman who'd come to New York to work in a comic book store and had ended up staying and was a, a big fan of ska and reggae and tried to start a, a ska band here with American musicians. It took him a little while to get that going, but he also discovered that there was sort of a burgeoning scene among high school kids in New York, like me, all the same age, who had come of age 
around two-tone. And so what he did was he sort of put it all together and he would book these shows all around the city, but most notably at CBGB's. I'd say like once a month, there'd be either a Sunday ska matinee or a Friday night ska show. And I started going to those. And that's when it all came together for me. And I had started playing the bass rudimentarily at that point. Once I started seeing those shows, I was like, wow, there's something going on right in my own backyard. And that inspired me to start my own ska band. And I put up some ads around um, Rutgers looking for musicians who were into it. And quite haphazardly, uh, within like two weeks, we had a band where, you know, whoever the first person to respond was who played that instrument was in the band, whether they were good or not. But it was really intoxicating. And we quickly got songs together. And then we started to play uh, within the New Brunswick area. And then that just sort of spread. And we, we sort of became auxiliaries to that New York City ska scene that had developed. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Mark Wasserman. He's the author of Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. So your background really set the stage for me, and I hope it does for our listeners. But let's dig into your book a little bit. Horace Panther of the specials, Pen the Forward. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is very cool. I had the uh, experience of meeting him a couple times. Uh, my band uh, was called Bigger Thomas. With During the three years that the original version of the band played, we were able to sort of build a following. Our home away from home was an iconic punk rock club in Trenton, New Jersey called City Gardens. The promoter there really liked us and he really liked ska music. And so we would play there probably every other month for the three years that that version of the band was together. One of the shows we opened for was Special Beat, which was a super group featuring members of the specials and English Beat that formed in the late 80s and early 90s, mostly to take advantage of the fact that ska was exploding here in the US. We opened for them at the Ritz and then we opened for them at City Gardens. And um, my uh, bandmate, and the singer for Bigger Thomas, Roger Apollon, and I were interviewed by the BBC to sort of talk a little bit about why ska was suddenly popular in the U.S. And I remember walking in to play the show at City Gardens, and there was Horace Panther, and I was sort of starstruck. And he walked up to me and said, I saw you on the BBC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that started sort of um, a conversation, and he always remembered me from that. You know, I've, I've corresponded with him. I interviewed him for my podcast. And so when I reached out to him, he was like, no problem, I'd be happy to do that. And he's also a a published author. He wrote a great book about his experiences in in the specials. So when I sort of appealed to him to to write something about a forward for my book, he he was happy to do it. So I I was, it was sort of a dream come true. He's one of my my musical heroes. Definitely. And a a very cool forward, I might say. Uh, Also, because of my background in design, I do have to give you a shout out uh, for the book cover. It is spectacular. It is just a great book cover. Thank you very much. You know, I really wanted an image that would capture what the book is about. From the very beginning, I wanted to use that picture of Clyde Grimes, who was the uh, founder and lead guitarist for The Untouchables, who were the first ska band from LA. My publisher was like, good luck with that, because that's from from an album, and you're going to have to get permission, blah, blah, blah. So I set off to find out if I could actually pull that off. And 
I had interviewed a lot of members of the Untouchables, so I asked some questions about who took that picture and who owns the rights to that picture. And I was connected with this gentleman named Frank Gargani, who was a very notable LA uh, music photographer in the 70s and 80s and literally took pictures of every band that played in LA. And I reached out to him about this. And initially he was not into it. I think he, he explained to me that that picture had been bootlegged and stolen and he hadn't been paid for it and so on and so forth. And I spoke very passionately to him about what it meant to me, why it was important, why I thought it would be a great eye-catchy image on the book. And I think I wore him down. <laughs> and um, we, we worked out a deal. My publisher paid him a, a modest amount of money to license that picture. And then once he agreed to do it, he was in 100%. Uh, I think when he realized that I didn't have any bad intentions, I wasn't looking to rip him off. And when he got paid, he was all on board. Um, so I had his blessing. But that picture of Clyde to me is just the best image of what American ska in the 80s meant. First of all, you know, as a black man, Clyde represented what was most important about ska music to me in the early 80s ska in America was uh, like two-tone. It was completely driven by two-tone. So you had lots of diverse bands of black and white musicians, and just the way he looks, the, the energy of his movement, uh, that high kick, you know, that looks like it could be from the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, it's timeless. He's just the coolest looking guy in the world and everybody said he was the coolest guy in the world. You know, I, I'm glad that, that Frank agreed to let me use that picture because uh, I wanted the book to have a, a, a picture that if you walked by it, you'd say, wow, what's going on there? I got to look at that. You got it. Uh, your designer did a hell of a job, too. I mean, it, it really captures the American ska scene, and uh, it's so well done. So congrats on that. Thank you. So you, you had mentioned the untouchables, but I can go back further because it's always fun to do these and read so much, but I always learn something. And your book is has got a lot of bands in it, but I was blown away to see the Shakers from 1973. I'd never heard of this band, but talk about ahead of the times. Yeah, fa fascinating story. Before I wrote the book, I was um, a very active blogger, and my blog was called Marco on the Bass, was really focused on American style and reggae. And I don't know how I discovered the Shakers, but um, I sort of dug into their story, and it became clear very quickly that there was something there that I don't think a lot of people knew about. They were from Berkeley, California, which in a lot of ways is sort of the birthplace, along with Boston, of uh, reggae in, in America. There was a club there called the Long Branch, and the, the guy who owned it was a big reggae fan, and he started a um, sort of a circuit where he would bring Jamaican artists from Kingston, Jamaica to Berkeley. He would fly them in and book them and pay them, and they would they were selling out all over Berkeley and San Francisco. That inspired this group of American musicians to start their own band. They would play. They played every Sunday night and built up a following. And word got out, and uh, record companies started a bidding war to sign them because they're like, "Well, this this band is selling out every Sunday night. There must be something going on here." And what happened was they they were signed to Electra Asylum by David Geffen, of all people. And then they sort of got caught in the major label churn. They wanted to be a traditional reggae band and their record label wanted to turn them into like Beach Boys Light. And this didn't sit well with this band, The Shakers. Their album was sort of watered down. 
when it came out, it was sort of dead on arrival because it really didn't sound like it's it's really reggae light, uh, almost like the most watered down UB40 you've ever heard in your life. They went on tour briefly and then they were dropped by their label. And that was sort of the end of the story. But for me, it was important to tell their story because they are evidence of the fact that reggae had sort of made inroads in America in the early 70s in certain places. A lot of that had to do with the movie, The Harder They Come, which was played in Berkeley and in Boston, literally like nonstop. Uh, you know, they did a lot of midnight showings of that movie on Friday and Saturday nights. But that exposed a whole crop of, of musicians, American musicians, to reggae music. And in many cases, that was sort of um, uh, the beginnings for, for those musicians of wanting to play reggae. So that's why I wanted to make sure that not only was there a story about how they had to deal with a major label interesting to me, but I also just felt like people should know that, that this went back beyond, you know, the mighty, mighty Boston's and real big fish, that there were American reggae and ska musicians in, in the early 70s. Definitely news to me. I mean, there's, like I said, a ton of bands in your book. And I'm, I'm curious what your selection process was. It just everybody that you knew? Because it was a tight genre. I went to school up here in Boston. So, you know, Bim Scala Bim. And there, there was definitely a scene. Um, so how did you include the bands? And then geographically, is that something that Scotch has settled into certain areas? Or how did that work? Yeah, um, it was very hard. I wanted to include more bands, but uh, there you can see the print. The print's already small enough, and the book's already long enough that my my publisher was like, "Listen, you're going to have to make some decisions here." So to answer your question, it was a little bit of a mix. I wanted to include bands that I was a fan of, but I also wanted to include bands that I felt really were responsible for creating a, a uniquely American version of ska. For instance, the Shakers. Like you know, I just felt even though I, I wasn't a, a initially a fan, I felt their, their story had to be included. But I grew up, as I mentioned, in the New York City ska scene. And so I wanted to include their stories and, and including the stories of some of those bands, many of them probably people outside of New York in the 80s and 90s had never heard of. I did that at the expense of some, of, some bigger bands. Like I debated whether I should include Fishbone or the Mighty Mighty Boston's who both formed at the exact same time that all these bands did. But I felt that there was already a lot of media out there about both Fishbone and the Mighty Mighty Bostons, but there wasn't about Beat Brigade or Skadanks. And so that had a lot to do with why I made some of the choices I did. did does that sort of impact my, the marketability of my book? Probably. If I had a chapter on Fishbone and Mighty Mighty Bostons, there might be some more interest in it. But I wanted to be true to my, my interests, but also to make sure that those guys who were inspiring to me also got their stories out there. Well, and their stories also really represent the scene, you know, in the heart of the scene, I think. And, uh, you know, as I said, you know, geographically, Boston was college town, very supportive. And, um, you know, BIM, Skylar BIM, they were everywhere. And it was like five bucks to see them play. And, you know, that was really my first exposure to American Scott and, you know, a little faster uh, than two-tone and, um, but just like such a great night out, you know? Oh yeah, I mean, I we my band Bigger Thomas opened for Bim Scala Bim at that club I mentioned in Trenton called City Gardens, and that's how we got to know them. And to me, they were like the perfect uh, combination of two tone with reggae, with a little bit of punk rock and and rock and roll. I mean, a couple of the guys in Bim Scala Bim were deadheads, and I remember I heard their record before I ever saw them, so I 
the first time I was going to see them, I expected them to look a certain way. Hmm. And when I saw them, I was like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, like their bass player, who's um, Mark Ferrante, who is a, a, another um, big influence on me as, as, a, as a musician, he looked like a hippie. He had long hair and um, some of the other guys just looked like, uh, yeah, like hippies from the 60s. But then when they started to play, I was blown away. So that sort of taught me uh, an important lesson that sometimes the sound is more important than the look. I mean, I think we'd been trained by two-tone that you had to look a certain way. And, and Bim, to me, said, no, as long as the music's on point, as long as you're writing danceable songs that connect with an audience, that's what's important. So that was the, the lesson that I took away from them. Did you find that geographically there was musical differences that hung together, you know, by region, much like, you know, that, that was very common with UK uh, punk rock and ska. I do, yes. For instance, the Untouchables are more like a mod meets ska band. Um, there was a lot of soul influences in the Untouchables. They grew up in LA and that was what they listened to. And that was a band that was predominantly black and the, the black music experience informed the Untouchables. They got into ska through two-tone. So they sort of mixed two-tone with 60s rock. I mean, they were into the Who and the Monkees and the small faces, they sort of added ska on top of that. And But those guys are slightly older than than a lot of the bands that, that I was into, so I, that makes sense. But yes, BIM were totally uh, into reggae. And in fact, you know, one of the interesting things I learned when I interviewed them was they would have preferred to have been a reggae band. They just felt uncomfortable as an all-white band playing reggae. So they took their cues from two-tone and felt that if they played more ska than reggae, that they would be more marketable. But I, I thought that was sort of interesting. Yeah, Boston is a reggae town and they were really a reggae band at heart. In New York, a lot of the bands took elements of hardcore and punk. And so you, you would hear that in, in the mix. You know, Not the Toasters as much who are more traditional, but some of the bands that, that I wrote about, like the New York Citizens were straight up at times like a punk band that just happened to play mixes of ska in there. So yeah, I think depending upon the market and what was the predominant sort of sound outside of ska, you would hear those influences mixed in with the ska. And of course, California was always a different world musically and with two-tone notwithstanding. But, you know, let's re rewind a little bit. We've talked about ska and Jamaican ska in particular, which got a huge lift from this scene. You know, were you exposed to that young? Or did that come through the two-tone? And, you know, which bands and which songs are your favorites from the traditional ska scene? Again, I have to give credit to um, some of the record store clerks at, at the time, but also to my friends, uh, friends that I met in college who had similar music tastes to me, but also um, bigger record collections than me. One of my roommates in college had a huge record collection that he brought to school with him. And uh, I think he was the one that sort of introduced me to the Scottalites. And uh, he was really into jazz too, so that made sense. But I remember hearing the Scottalites for the first time and going, oh, <laughs> you know, as you know, uh, we didn't have the internet. And so you had to figure this stuff out on your own. You sort of had to be a musical detective. And it took a while to put everything together. I think a lot of us mistakenly believed that it, it started with the specials and two-tone. But if you looked carefully at the liner notes, from a lot of those first two-tone albums, the specials, the beat, the selector, 
they're playing cover versions of songs from 60s Jamaican ska and rock steady bands. And when I started paying attention to that and then doing a little bit of research, I began to realize that all the two-tone bands were influenced by Jamaican ska and rock steady that they heard in England that we didn't have here in the US. And so again, I started to put all that together and then I started to find those records. And so yes, I became just as big a fan of the Scottalites, but also I love uh, rock steady and early reggae before it really slowed down where it was sort of fun, but there was also a social and political message that starts to begin in like the late sixties. And then I also began to realize that there were American artists that were influenced by ska and reggae. Um, Paul Simon, Mother and Child Reunion, you'd hear that and he had a backing band play of, of Jamaican musicians playing that. You hear that on the radio and it would sound totally out of character for American radio. So, and Johnny Nash also, right. um, you know, so it all started to come together when I realized that there was more to it than just sort of the punk meets ska of the specials. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Mark Wasserman. He's the author of Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. Interestingly, aside from the music, the two-tone movement out of Britain in the late 70s was very political, and we've spoken a bit about some of the racial issues that they helped to try and bridge. Um, I think it's Stephen Schaefer in your book writes that despite the success, it was largely a flip in the States, and that was due to Chrysalis's inability to market it in a racially segregated America. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, I did speak with Steve a lot about that and what informed his essay that opens up my book. And I felt that was important because my book is an oral history and I don't provide any commentary or context. Each chapter sort of stands alone as the story for each band. But I felt that I needed something that would sort of provide a grounding as you begin reading the book. And Steve, I think, did a really good job analyzing what was going on here in the U.S. as ska dawned. When we were talking, we kind of zeroed in on 1985 as the year that ska broke. And the reason for that was um, a couple albums that came out all at the same time. The Untouchables' first album came out, The Toasters' first album came out, and Fishbone's first album came out. Each of those albums, I think, is very reflective in their own unique ways of, of the two-tone movement in Britain. Two of those bands were predominantly black. And if you really analyze the songs on those albums, there is a sort of a front line in, you know, in black America that's coming through in, in those records, but they were influenced by two-tone. And to me, while Chrysalis was probably unable to market in a racially segregated America because two-tone didn't fit in to a bucket. And I remember Horace Panter telling me that, that when they were touring the US, he would pop into record stores and he would see the specials album in the cutout bin. And because he realized they just didn't know where to put it. But the win is that there were people all over the US who found those records. And there were DJs who played those records. And occasionally you'd see those videos on MTV. And if you were paying attention, you'd hear them and you'd go out and buy those records. I mean, one of the greatest stories in my book uh, when I interviewed Norwood Fisher of Fishbone, he told me that they thought they had invented what they termed punk rock reggae. And they're, they're all proud of themselves in their rehearsal room. You know, they're all in their early teens at this point. And their, their bandmate, Dirty Walt, says, you fools, 
We didn't invent anything. Check this album out. This is the selector. This is the English beat. We didn't invent anything. But the fact is that even though they didn't invent it, they took that two-tone sound and its message and made something unique and new specific to their experience in LA. So that I think is the most important part of that chapter that Steve writes and that informs uh, the rest of my book. Well, that coincides really well with one of my last questions for you. Where is ska today? There are undertones everywhere. And, you know, maybe the country is more racially divided than it was, hard to believe. But ska music seems less visible. But again, it's there if you listen for it, I think. It is out there. And we're at a sort of interesting point in American ska history right now. There is a, um, a record label called Bad Time Records who have sort of cornered the market right now on a new version of American ska. And they are, have signed a, a number of bands who are out very actively touring and are very active on social media and have sort of galvanized Generation Z to become fans of ska. There's a band, We Are The Union, who uh, released an album last year. In an interesting way, put a twist on Two-Tone, the lead singer is transgender and the album is about her experience uh, deciding to become transgender and a woman. And that has really resonated with LGBTQ community, but also the transgender community. It's, it's sort of um, has representation uh, in a way that it hasn't before. So I think that's really important. And, and some of the other bands on that label are also sort of mixing in, I guess it would be more like punk or, or like heavy metal and rock into their sound. So if you're a more traditional fan, it might be a little bit dissonant for you to hear, but this is what American ska is now. And, and the beauty of, Ameri of American ska and ska in general is how mutable it is and how you can add just about any genre of music to it. And it still sounds good. That's where we are right now. Um, there's a great band from Philadelphia called Cat Bite, a little bit more traditional, sort of sound like Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson meets Two-Tone with some punk rock in there, and they are, they are blowing up right now. So it's, it's out there, and I, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Slackers, who um, in my mind are the Grateful Dead of American Ska, have been together for 25 or 30 years now, and just keep going. They have become an industry unto themselves, they have a dedicated fan base. Um, they put out their music themselves uh, and they make a living on the road. And so, you know, they to me are also very indicative of the longevity and the strength of, of American ska. And you also, uh, I should mention, have a podcast called Ska Boom. And what can you tell our listeners about that and where they can find you? Sure. Um, I initially started that podcast because I wanted to document the, the book writing process. So I wanted to sort of generate some interest and excitement in what I was doing. So I would share anecdotes or stories or videos, things I had discovered as I was interviewing all these different people. Also, you know, because I wanted people to, to get a sense about what the book was going to be about. And then I decided to start podcasting about it as well. It seemed like a, it would be good to take advantage of an, the audio format. It gave me um, a little bit more flexibility than just using the written word. So I, uh, I used it initially to document it. But then I, as I mentioned, I was a, a blogger at one point. I sort of took 
the blog and put it into an audio format. And it's really focused on my love of two-tone and American ska, but just really trying to tell stories, a lot of them that aren't people probably aren't familiar with. I tried to just bring my book to life through the podcast. And people can can find the podcast wherever you download um, podcasts. It's, just, it's called Ska Boom. And I found one that I loved, uh, was it this week? Where you break down Madame Medusa, which is by far my favorite UB40 song. And I totally agree with you. You need to go with the 11-minute version, not the four-minute <laughs> version. That may be the deadhead and me talking, but I did not know that was about Maggie Thatcher. Yeah, and also um, what I think was really interesting about about that, and I'm a huge UB40 fan. Uh, they were really, really um, important to me as a musician, uh, uh, like Paul Simonon of The Clash, who's also a hero of mine. Um, I was inspired by musicians who didn't know how to play their instruments before they started in Nobody in UB40 knew how to play their instruments before they started. So that was inspiring to me. Paul Simonon didn't know how to play the bass before he started. But the political message of, of the early UB40, before they sort of became a, a covers band, was really important. And, you know, growing up under Ronald Reagan and then Margaret Thatcher uh, was tough for lots of people. And so that UB40 helped politicize me. But what was also fascinating about Madame Medusa is that the two brothers in the band, Robin and Ali Campbell, their father was a noted folk musician in England, Ian Campbell, who a lot of Americans might not know, but um, Simon and Garfunkel covered one of his songs on their first album. He helped to write that song, which I thought was fascinating. He was um, a committed socialist and an anarchist, and you can you can hear that uh, you know in the lyrics. He wrote the lyrics for that song, so that was sort of a a, a key learning for me that I found fascinating. Well, there's tons of stuff. Congratulations on your book. It is probably the definitive book if any of our listeners are ska fans, American ska in particular. Uh, you should dig into it. It's available everywhere, right? It's a, it's available. You can get it on Amazon or um, visit my publisher's website, dewolf.com, D-I-W-U-L-F.com. Well, good luck with the book. And thank you very much for joining us, Mark. It's uh, We could talk all day and I'd learn tons, but, uh, you know, schedules do not permit that. So <laughs> thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed speaking with you. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. <laughs>